0: He pie the farmer's wintry hoard. he pie the golden corn, no richer gift has autumn poured from out her lavish horn. John Greenleaf Whittier. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank everyone for joining me this week. I really appreciate the support. Uh, February is uh, seeming to be as off to a big of a start as January was. So uh, really excited and pleased for that. Um, I didn't have too much in the way of feedback, so uh, what I will be doing this week is just trying to finish up what I believe will be everything in terms of crop domestication for this season. And this will include uh, the last couple of crops that we have still to cover from North America and the this includes a fruit as well. And then we'll, of course, move into uh, the few crops that are starting to be domesticated in South America. <clears throat> so, to that end, we will first start to talk about amaranth. Now, this plant entered uh, English from the French Amarante, uh, from the Latin amaranthus or Amaranthus, depending, I guess, on the... Um, version of latin you're looking at <clears throat> and now this latin spelling of course is also from the greek "amarantos," which is the name of a mythical uh, flower uh, it was like unfading unwilting undecaying so uh, that's that's where the term comes from in english though uh of course it was called other things by other people well before it entered into uh, the European lexicons. Uh, but the primary name I found used by natives to those regions uh, is the Aztec Wa... I'm going to butcher this. wa Uti Or Wa-Ultli, perhaps. I'm not sure. Apologies for my The Uh, There are other names for it in other languages, and older ones even than the Waddle. Uh, The Mayan languages, for instance, called it either Tez or Etez, depending on the dialect. But I don't know that anyone grew it more than the Aztecs did. Some estimates claim it could have made up as much as 80% of their calories that they consumed daily. Now, part of the reason for... This is how efficient amaranth is as a crop. Um, a small amount of seeds plants a large area. Uh, I think um, I think if everything is you know goes well, you have healthy seeds, you have healthy soil, you have you know close to ideal temperatures and weather. Um, you can plant uh, one kilogram of seeds uh, for uh, a hectare, and this yields. Um, a very high amount of seed, so basically you get a thousand kilograms uh, or more per, uh, per hectare. Now amaranth is making a little bit of a, a comeback it's gaining popularity as like a health or a superfood yeah that's one of those big um, fitness trends that they try every so often like oh this this plant is the secret to Health, and this is why our ancestors were so healthy, and yada yada, even though you know these are gross simplifications, and usually that's not why our ancestors were that healthy. And in fact, our ancestors are not that healthy uh, comparatively in terms of nutrition, Um, it's maybe some other factors that make them maybe healthier than us in some ways, but again, in many ways, they're not. But that's kind of getting. Off topic, uh, at least for now. Uh, but that is not to say that amaranth does not have, you know, useful properties in a crop and ones that make it uh, very effective and useful here today. Um, it is gluten free, uh, which is something that you know more and more people, at least here in the Americas, in America, the USA, uh, and Canada too, for that matter, I believe, are becoming more and more gluten intolerant. <clears throat> Now you also have um, the, it, these. Uh, the crop has a lot of dietary minerals, um, calcium, magnesium, things like that. Now uh, the Spanish made an effort to promote other crops and tried to kind of discourage and eliminate amaranth's growth in uh, traditional regions uh, where it was being grown, and this is due to the religious connections to the face of those areas. Amaranth kind of is involved in a few uh, important myths and ceremonies uh, that these people were partaking in. Uh, but again, that's all stuff that we're going to cover in the future, so just keep that in mind. <laughs> now, there um, there's a large number of amaranth species, uh, probably surprising to a lot of people who maybe were not aware of the crop. Now, amaranth has around 75 different species worldwide. Uh, Some strains are grown and treated as grain. They're grown for their seeds to turn into flour. That's what we grow here in the U.S. Uh, In fact, um, these types are primarily grown in the Americas and South Asia. Um, Now, there are other varieties of amaranth that are closer to vegetables um, with their leaves and, um, roots kind of being the primary reason for their cultivation. These varieties are more popular in, popular, excuse me, in Eastern Asia and Africa. Though, again, there are areas in where it's reversed, uh, you know, they're not completely just ignored, uh, that's not to say there there's no grain amaranth grown in Africa. Uh, and that's not to say there's no uh, vegetable amaranth grown in uh, the Americas. There is kind of a, a balance to some of these things. <clears throat> now, there are also varieties of amaranth that are weeds. Uh, and they will overgrow an area and smother other plants if they're not controlled. It is not something that is completely uh You know healthful and beneficial there are downsides to amaranth or at least certain species of amaranth now um it is generally believed that amaranth is domesticated a couple of different times first in central america and then in south america now the domestication in central america happens right towards the end of this season right around 4500-4000 bc bce Now, there are some debates that are fairly interesting. I don't know how you know, how accurate some of the claims to put forward on uh, about how and when amaranth spread out of the Americas. Uh and I was going to kind of dive into it um but I've decided to hold off as evidence for when it possibly appears outside of the Americas um even if it somehow did leave the Americas at the time, some people make these um, more dubious claims. It's still not happening until another couple of thousand years, uh, at the very least. So I'm going to hold off on that now. Uh, Maybe there will be some new research, some actual evidence, some genetic stuff that we can kind of discuss. But as of right now, um, we just need to know that it's being domesticated in Central America. And that leads us into another uh, piece of domestication that's happening uh, at around the same time, and that is the first uh, fruit trees domesticated in the New World, and that is uh, the avocado trees. Um, now, the avocado uh, derives from the uh, Nahuatl language, again Aztec. Uh, they called the tree ajo akwa uh, and its fruit... Ahuacatl, uh, and I again apologies to any Nahuatl speakers that I may or may not have. Now, <clears throat> the Spanish, of course, um, they called it something similar. They they basically pronounced it as they heard it, which was something close to aguacate, uh, or aguacate, um, or avocado, uh, depending on I guess the the dialect of Spanish that they were speaking. <clears throat> and that is, of course, what we obtained in English, excuse me. <clears throat> now, the fruits, of course, had been consumed by people almost as soon as they began encountering the the trees. Um, and this uh, but the domestication probably didn't start to right around 4,000 B.C., uh, is when the the earliest evidence of um, purposefully, like, planting and growing the trees began. Now, it is debated on this happened at a single site uh, in the Tehuacan Valley, in what is now Mexico. Um, and then it was further refined, and, you know, breeding of different varieties um, happened uh in neighboring areas, and that's how you get the different varieties of avocado. If its originator is this one place in Tehuacan, or did, or did there exist three or four regional areas where domestication of slightly different wild species took place? And one of those would have been the Tehuacan Valley, but there were also been places like in Guatemala or what is now Guatemala, and. Um, uh, I believe uh, Panama as well uh, was another place that this may have happened. <clears throat> Whatever the exact case, there has been crossbreeding between various um, varieties for centuries since this happened. So I guess in the grand scheme of things, it really doesn't matter if it was the single domestication event that spread or if it was the multiple domestication event that then combined together and then respread really out. It's hard to really say. Now, we're going to move on to um, North America, or we're going to finish off North America. <clears throat> and to do that, we're going to talk about maize or corn. And I maybe should have covered this as one of the uh, first uh Plants, uh, when talking about the Americas, uh, as it is the oldest, after Squash and, uh, the other cucurbita, or Cucubita, excuse me. Um, but as I was trying to keep episodes balanced on time, um, I figured that this one may take up a little bit more, uh, uh, discussion than, some of the other episodes, um, say if I had just included avocado last week, it may be only been about like a 20 minute episode, but of course that might not work out this week. It might This episode might end up being a lot longer, <laughs> but yeah, you know, best laid plans of mice and men and all that. Now, corn is from the old English corn, uh, which meant like a single seed of a cereal plant or seeds of cereal plants. Uh, generally, like just, like if you talk about all cereal plants, you would just call them collectively corn. Now, um, this probably entered into English from the Proto-Germanic kernum, which meant small seed, uh, which is from the Proto-Indo-European root, uh, grino. Uh, And kernel comes from this same uh, etymology. Like a kernel of corn. Uh, that type of thing now early colonists from britain when they got to the americas um, they would call the plant indian or turkey corn Um, now of course as time passed and the colonists uh, and their descendants adopted to growing the plant um, the superlatives were, were dropped and it just became known as corn now, the, uh, the name maize, uh, which is another term that you'll see a lot of people use for corn outside of America, uh, it is a Latinization of the Taino word mahis. Uh, it literally means life-giving seed. And virtually every na- native language family has their own term for the crop. Um, and I already touched on the area where the plant was domesticated, I think, last season. Uh, but is, that, that is ugh, but as of now, the evidence sh- shows that it was along, somewhere along the Balsas River, River Valley where the domestication of maize began. And this involved planning and crossbreeding four different strains of wild uh, Zea ancestors known as uh, Teosintes. And uh, when I say Zea, um, that's the, the scientific name for maize. It's Zea maize. Um, Zea, of course, is the Greek word um, that is actually used as uh, for spelt uh, that we talked about for the European crop. So they, it, it also is related to uh, giving life. Um, so it's, it's kind of a redundant scientific name. It's uh, life-giving mace. So life-giving, life-giving seed essentially is what the scientific name means. And uh, the the term uh, Teosintes is like the wild maize strains, uh, which still exist in certain places. uh, And they do not look at all similar. Uh, If you were to look at a wild Teosintes and, of course, modern corn, you would have no idea how closely related they actually are. Now, of course, when they first started planting these wild strains... Um, they did not realize that they would be able to manipulate them in much the same way that the people first planting uh, barley rye things like that they obviously didn't know um, how you know easily and how radically altered these plants can be um, and um, we've you know discussed earlier you know as time goes on and more understanding and control of the plants emerge um, eventually this starts to give rise to newer and uh, more diverse breeds of plants so first of course they're trying probably to increase um, the size of either the kernels or the amount of kernels um, or seeds that these plants are producing and then later as time goes on you know' they're, they're probably trying to you know uh, get strains that are more suited to uh, different environments uh, environments neighboring uh, the ones that they're you know naturally found in and again this is a process and um, for a few thousand years um, the maize being grown um, is a tropical plant and will remain so it won't move into north america for for quite a while and even today with even more cold tolerant strains, they're still limited in range to, you know, where they can be grown in, uh, the U S. Um, and, um, they have to be planted. Even these cold tolerant strains, they have to be planted early in the spring. Um, otherwise they're not going to survive in some places, uh, you know, that long, uh, into the year. So if you want a healthy, uh, abundant harvest, you need to plant, plant corn early, at least, uh, the more north you go, the earlier you have to plant it. Uh, also, um, part of this as well is not just weather, uh, susceptibility. Corn is also extremely susceptible, um, susceptible to fungus. Um, in some cases more susceptible, I think, than some other, um, grasses and grains. But, um, you know, further north, uh, funguses uh, can grow, at least the ones corns are susceptible to, they can grow uh, in a lot of different places. And in some cases, they grow better in, I think, colder uh, environments. Now, corn will, will be able to be exported to the south. And this does happen in a couple of ways. Um, The first of these diffusions happens this season, sometime between 4,500 and 4,000 B.C., uh, where it will reach the western side of the Andes uh, Mountains. And a number of people will start growing it there. However, it isn't grown in vast quantities, at least from what we can tell from the archaeological record. And this is true even as time goes forward. Um... Um, and a lot of the harvests of corn are believed to be tied to um, or at least a lot of the harvests of corns are believed to have been earmarked for the creation of alcoholic beverages like chicha, uh, which is I believe uh, the one that is the term in Mexico for uh, corn uh, beer or corn liquor um, and these types of beverages are Used much like beer in Mesopotamia and wine around the Mediterranean basin, uh, the um. So this uh, this beverage is used as not just a social lubricant, but also for religious purposes. So a lot of what uh, corn was grown in, at least at this first stage of diffusion, um, was grown in areas that it may, or may not have been best suited to. But it was grown because it was so uh, versatile and useful for creating, you know, this this great alcoholic beverage. Um, uh, now, when it comes for you know uh, foods to survive on, the South Americans have plenty of their own domesticates to survive on. So, this special crop from far away, this this maize, um, you know, it it's not surprising that they maybe don't necessarily keep it around, you know, in large amounts, you know, aside from just the religious and social aspects of said crop. And speaking of, of course, uh, domesticates in South America, it is time to move on to discuss those crops arising in South America. Now, we already discussed beans last week, uh, and it does appear now that there was two domestication events Uh, in the Americas, um, one in Mesoamerica and one kind of in the um, Andean highlands uh, with beans. Now, uh, from genetic tests, it does appear as if a lot of the Andean or South American beans eventually got um, kind of crossbred with the Mesoamerican bean, which led some to believe that the Mesoamerican bean is the originator, but again, there have been earlier uh, finds since then that kind of disprove, uh No, there was a separate domestication event, and it kind of got subsumed by the um, more dominant variety of the um, Mesoamerican beans, but uh, that's happening kind of at this point in time. Um, we also have potatoes uh, that are being domesticated, and this is def- also happening in the Andes now, uh, etymologically speaking uh, potato comes to English from um, the Spanish patata uh, which itself um, I read a couple of different explanations for you know how it came about uh, some claim that the Spanish word is just from the Carib language uh, the one I think they said that was initially spoken on Haiti Uh, which was batata, although I did read also uh, that it was a combination of uh, a Taino word, also batata, and uh, the Quichua, which was one of the languages in um, uh, now what is uh, Peru and um, Ecuador, um, Papa, so it was Pa, ta, so it was a combination, basically, of um, the Taino word uh, and the Quechua word. Uh, I'm not sure which is correct. Um, I will say that the Carib slash Taino word, patata, uh, means sweet potato, and the uh, Quechua word is more of a what we would consider like a normal potato. Um, but regardless, what uh the origin in English is the same. It comes from the Spanish who either got it from one native group or another. It's not a term they invented wholesale out of you know thin air. <clears throat> and that leads us to something that's you know, again we talked about sweet potato and potato. Uh there are an extremely large number of potato varieties. Um there's over five thousand different varieties. Um and if you live on the, you know, uh, West coast of South America, uh, you'll run into quite a large variety of these and worldwide. I think a lot of the ones grown outside of South America are variations of, um, or descended from varieties from, uh, I think what is now modern Chile. And that, of course, again, we'll get into this more in more detail later that did become a problem, uh, Being so reliant on one specific strain of potatoes kind of does set you up for disaster if there's a specific blight or disease that affects one variety of potatoes. Now, of course, as we mentioned, there are uh, sweet varieties and um, starchy varieties. Uh, And this this is actually something that we'll talk about with another type of crops. But this is something you run into a lot with tubers um, of all varieties, uh, not just potatoes. So um, the potato's value and uh, importance cannot be overstated in terms of um, um, nutrition, cultural significance. Like this isn't something that's extremely important to people uh, living on the western coast of uh, South America, uh, for pretty much all their history, like their their local variety of potato is important, in addition to whatever else is nearby them as well. Um, and I've read a, a travel log. Uh, I forget who the name of the person was, but he said if you wanted to pass a couple of hours, just and you were in, you know, speaking to some of these native peoples living in those regions, um, just ask them about their local variety of potatoes and you could kill a good portion of your afternoon just talking about it and why theirs is special and different now uh, potatoes are technically i think a nightshade like uh, tomatoes um so that does mean that they do have a certain level of toxins which is dangerous for human consumption um but you know if you're stored properly and you make sure that you don't let them um uh, get exposed to too much light and they don't have those little green sections that sprout uh, the tubers and things like that. Generally speaking, you're going to be okay. You don't have to worry about it uh, too, too much. As Of course, as long as you uh, cook and prepare them properly. And of course, uh, another thing with potatoes, um, they can... Like a lot of tubers, they can be kept in the ground for long periods. If you want to allow them to continue to grow, you don't necessarily have to harvest them at a specific time. They're not like um, they're not like um, grains. They don't necessarily rot quite the same way. They don't. You have to have them out of the ground by a certain point. You have a little bit more leeway uh, with that type of thing. <clears throat> And speaking of potatoes and tubers, that does lead us into another uh, crop that is being domesticated in South America. Uh, this is closer to, um, I guess, Brazil, uh, somewhere in the um, Amazon basin. Um, and, but it is also a tumor, uh, tuber, excuse me, uh, domesticated a little bit later than uh, potatoes, which could have possibly been domestication could have started there, you know, possibly last season. Um, but very definitely has already, um, kind of, you know, grown out in proportion fairly quickly in this season in terms of, um, how widespread it is. But the crop, uh, that starts domestication this season in the Amazon basin is, um, cass- uh, cassava or also known as manioc is another term that you will see for it. Now, uh, cassava, um, comes to English from uh, either the French cassave, uh, the Spanish cassabe, or the Portuguese uh, cassave, uh, or cassave, excuse me. Um, and this is from the Taino word uh, cacabi. Um, and I think initially in English it was, uh, it was spelled with a Z, so it was cazabi, uh is the initial uh, English spelling for it. Now, this is um, again a tuber. It comes in two varieties a sweet and a starchy variety. Um, it is like potatoes, um, also has potential to be toxic to humans. Um, but it does have a couple of properties that potatoes don't. Um, they're uh, tapioca, uh, one of the key ways it can be made is from cassava, uh, extract, uh, the starch. Um, and that was used, uh, not just for human food, but also animal feed, uh, which, uh, of course there's no tapioca from potatoes, at least as far as I know. Uh, obviously you have mashed potatoes, but that's not really kind of the same thing. But if anyone is aware of a potato, uh, version of, uh, tapioca, please let me know. I'd be very interested in reading about it. Uh, also, I believe that the uh, the leaves for cassava uh, can also be used um, more, uh, can be used for uh, more purposes than potato leaves and uh, flowers can be. Um, of course, you can also use it to make bread, much like potatoes. Um, so ca- cassava is kind of like the uh, Eastern uh, South American variety of potatoes. And today it's grown uh, well outside of South America. It's kind of a, it's a very important crop in West Africa. I think it's the most grown crop um, over all of the West African nations. Uh, it's, it's a very important um, uh uh, famine food, uh, when, you know, when things are, uh, very desperate. It's a very good crop, um, to, to kind of have as a backup to what you maybe, uh, are used to in terms of, um, for food variety. Um, although I do think there are some situations where, uh, people will essentially risk eating the more toxic varieties, um, in times of famine, so just keep that in mind. Cassava can be dangerous, and it is more dangerous, I believe, on the whole, than potatoes. Though how you know how great that danger actually is, especially these days, I can't really say. Um, but uh, this is this crop is again it is domesticated slightly later than potatoes. <clears throat> Uh, next we have uh, chili peppers, uh, or just chilies depending on you know if you're a stickler for that kind of thing. Um, now these are actually one that was domesticated in a couple of different places. I think right now the earliest evidence shows that they were um, first being consumed uh, wild uh, in again the highlands of the Andes, somewhere between uh, the Peru, Bolivian, borders in modern day. Uh, And this is one of the regions where you see a lot of um, early agricultural activity in South America. Uh, But uh, interesting to note that uh, chili peppers don't really show up kind of in the archaeological record until about uh, 7,500 BC. Uh, And it will take another couple of thousand years before their domestication starts right around 4,500 to 4,000 BC. Uh, so they may not have been very popular, or they may have just been something that uh, was eaten on uh, occasionally, uh, not something that you take the time to cultivate. Uh, but that being said, um, they're very um, useful for uh, a number of things, including seasoning, uh, making food taste better just In general, also, uh, I believe um, there is evidence of them being used for possible uh, medicinal purposes, um, or at least parts of them are. It's also important to remember that um, while they do have uh, capsaicin, there's probably not anything that is extremely spicy, like some of the ones that have been developed today, uh, like the Carolina Reaper or um the uh, infinity chili or the dragon's breath or things like that these are these are extremely um, out of the ordinary um peppers just designed specifically almost to um, cause pain in some cases um but uh, that being said uh they were experimenting uh, very early on with increasing either um heat, uh, savoriness, sweetness. That's why you see so many types of peppers, um, and radically different varieties all throughout, uh, South America, Mesoamerica. And I think even, uh, there are places where it got to in North America as well. I need to double check that. But, um, I think some of the, um, earlier, um, pre-Columbian exchange peppers, um, you have bell peppers. I think jalapenos were prior to that as well cayenne um, that those are all close to varieties that would have existed in the past Um, so uh, and of course uh, you can use it as oil they probably um, used it as a drizzle in certain situations you also have uh, you could also use it as a deterrent for certain types of animals uh, to stay away from your food. If you put the uh, the powder or the oil on other types of crops, it would keep some animals away. So chilies are very important, um, and you know um, they uh, when it comes to spreading out of the Americas. Once the Columbian Exchange happens, uh, peppers are extremely popular and, uh, one of the bigger driver driving factors in getting, uh, European interest in the region, uh, and we'll get into that later with, like, the, um, excuse me, the, um, uh, the pepper trade from the, like, the old world peppers, um, and why lack of that in a Europe, um, was kind of a big, uh, factor in exploration, and we'll, but again, that's all far in the future, um, Oh, also, I forgot to mention, uh, Chile is, uh, from Nahuatl as well. It's an Aztec word, and it is, again, talking specifically about, uh, the variety of chili that they had access to. Uh, so that's where we get the term, uh, in English, uh, from Nahuatl, which, of course, we heard the term from Spanish, which doesn't seem like they, um... Heard it uh, too differently from what the Aztecs were actually pronouncing it as, and it didn't even get corrupted too much here in English. Although, I think, of course, we added pepper to the end of it because it was uh, similar in terms of um, what it was doing for food flavoring, that kind of thing. Uh, Now, that leads us to our final crop, uh, at least as far as I can tell from research, but if anyone thinks I've missed anything. Uh, or in any region, please let me know. But the final crop that we're going to be discussing is one I sort of mentioned uh, when talking about uh, Asian domesticates, and that, of course, is cotton. Now, I'm not going to go over the etymology again. I recommend you go back and listen to that if you missed it. Um, But uh, New World cotton is a little bit different from the cotton trees found in... um, in India, uh, the Indian subcontinent, um, and the kind of cotton that we're discussing here is what probably most of us are familiar with when we talk about cotton, um, the cotton plant, or uh, the cotton—I um, forget the term for it—but the non-tree cotton. Uh, now, there are couple of places where this could have originated in the Americas. But right now, evidence shows that the earliest uh, Gossipium cotton uh, plant is the Barbadense. Uh, And this was originated in what is now Peru. I think it's a place near Ancon is the name of the location in Peru. Uh, And this can be dated to around 4,200 BC. So it's Again, this appears to be domesticated strain, so it's very probable that this can date back uh, anywhere between a couple hundred to a thousand years. And uh, this uh, this plant, uh, uh, the Barbadense, is going to become extremely important, not for any uh, food reason, but for uh, creative reasons in terms of not just clothes, but also um, art. And things like that, or at least artistic expression, if not art, as we would understand it, and it is a vital backbone of a number of cultures that are going to arise in this region. Uh, growing cotton is going to be a valuable uh, economic factor, not just a survival factor, which is probably what was driving people when they were first you know harvesting the crop. Uh, it gives people something aside from Uh, leathers and skins to wear and this is happening even before uh, domestication is happening Um, and I'll go into this some more when I talk about when we move to animal domestication but from what I can tell it looks like crop domestication took place in South America uh, before any kind of true domesticated animal arose and we'll get into reasons for this a part of it is because of the types of animals that are living in the area, uh, but it's not like uh, the Middle East or, you know, North Africa. There are not these wild, in India too, there are not these wild animals that are being domesticated first and then slightly later crops are, are at the same time. Uh, it appears, at least in the Americas, crops first, animals second, as opposed to either animals first, crops second, or animals and crops uh, simultaneously. And um, one of the big talking points that we'll have for this region for, uh, I believe, this upcoming se- season is uh, the Nordicico, uh civilization. Or um, as it's sometimes called now, the caral Supe uh, civilization, I think is a newer uh, name for it. Um, now, I, I think they emerge this season. If not, they will emerge slightly after it, Uh, but they're one of the big um, proto-civilizations here in the Americas, but we'll get into them later. Um, But yeah, I think that's the main crops that have been domesticated. But again, if you guys have anything that you think I've missed or anything you'd like to ask me about, please let me know you can of course reach out to me at war at revpod at gmail.com you can direct message me on twitter slash x or you can comment on any of the youtube videos i get all of those comments and i do review them all even if i don't necessarily respond to them all but when it comes to the podcast i generally have responded to all of them so um but yeah please uh, any feedback or constructive criticism uh, I would appreciate very, very much, as would any kind of uh, rating, sharing. That all helps the show out immensely. Um, but, yeah. Um, so, next week, again, we will be back with uh, the first animal domestication episode of this season. Uh it won't be nearly as many uh, animal domestication episodes, I don't believe, as plant domestication. Uh, I think um, two to three at most. Um, but, yeah. Um, thank you all for joining me this week. I hope you have enjoyed this episode, and I will see you all next time. Please have a great rest of your day and your week. Thank you all. Goodbye.